0: Our theme for the month of October is heritage. The places where we live have a heritage. The liberal religion that we practice here has a heritage. Political liberalism has a heritage. And each of us, as Amos was mentioning, has an individual heritage that can sometimes be quite eclectic. First Unitarian society has a heritage as well. A eclectic sort of heritage, a reason that we are here and have been here for all these years, a why to what we do. And the why has a very simple answer to it, that's why we're here, change, <coughs> transformation. First Unitarian Society has been and is and will be here to change things, ourselves and our society. That's what we will be talking about on Sundays for this month. What kind of heritage are we looking at? Yet, transformation. Transformation in our thinking and change in our society. These are tough. It's difficult to look outside of how we do things in our various kinds of cultures. Take, for example, the idea of how much choice we have. Now, did, did some of you begin to think this, uh, the, uh, the game was not quite as chance-oriented as, as perhaps you? <laughs> Tyche was the god of fortune in ancient Greece. Fortune as in random chance. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of her devotees is supposed to have invented dice. She was about rolling the dice. Nowadays, we call natural disasters acts of God, but in ancient Greece, they were acts of Tyche. Now, by the way, one of her running buddies was Nemesis, who is not the kind of guy you really want to meet up with. But a funny thing happened on the way to the Roman Empire. The god Tyche became the Roman god Fortuna. Now, La Fortuna, Lady Fortune, and the Wheel of Fortune becomes not a roulette wheel in Rome, but rather a way of describing how nature itself works. Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. Now, what we see as time goes on is a transformation from the Greek concept of chance in the universe to the Roman concept that there is something in the universe that both creates order and creates inescapable fates for human beings, what we call destiny. And this overarching thing the Romans called logos, L-O-G-O-S, logos. What we also see developing is the template for what would become the monotheistic god, an all-powerful, all-knowing being. For most ancient Greeks, the world was filled with all kinds of local gods, uh, you know, water nymphs and tree nymphs and that kind of thing. And yes, there was then this overarching god, Zeus. With the Romans, this began to change, and eventually Logos became this rational, controlling, all-knowing god of the universe. Now, Christian theologians and priests latched on to this developing concept when Christianity came along that chance simply could not exist in a universe created by an all-knowing God. This then became a basic assumption of the developing Christian movement, an idea that remains with us today in the minds of millions of human beings. And with the death of chance, and the rise of destiny as the model for thinking about reality, another question arose. What about free will in such a universe? Can we do anything to change ourselves or the circumstances of our lives? What is it about our lives that's up to us? And what is it, you know, luck, chance, and God? Soon, in European-dominated cultures such as the U.S., what people thought of God was able to do was not only about how they could help you, but how they shaped all of human history. Now, our liberal tradition, our liberal religious tradition, came down on the side that human beings can change this can change this overarching idea of what's going to happen next in the universe. And we also came down on the side that we can transform ourselves in our world. That has been the defining why of liberal religion. Now, wherever you come down on the free will debate, we do know that there is determinism at work in our lives. We talk about the fortunate, we talk about destiny and the American dream, yet we also face a tragic reality. In the United States today, the zip code where you're born, where you grow up, and where you live affects your fate, as does the color of your skin, your gender, and on and on. We all know this. Many of us here have fought the battle both for ourselves and the sake of our loved ones and our country for many years. Poverty is everywhere in the United States, though if you look at this map, you will see that the Mason-Dixon line is clear and vivid on a map of American poverty. Poverty, hunger, Poor health, short lives. The old Confederacy still shows up as a region there, doesn't it? Remind yourself that had the South won the war, the international border would have been the Ohio River. And you can see poverty tracing the Ohio River even today. That would have been the international border, just as the Rio Grande is now the border between Texas and Mexico. That didn't happen, but the effects are as stark today as they were have been since the very beginnings of Europeans invading this nation. Your zip code determines a great deal about how your life will play out. Yet, even born into a relatively affluent zip code, most people are pretty well stuck. In terms of social mobility, moving from one social class to another, the U.S. does not make the top 20 list of nations in our world. As a matter of fact, though Americans have long sneered at British social class uh, snobbery, By most measures, the UK scores above the US nowadays in terms of social mobility. The the UK is not in the top 20 either, but we are below that. Whatever the existence or non-existence of a metaphysical free will in our world and in our nation and in this community, the circumstances of your birth has large effects on what kind of life you will lead What your fate will be. In an essay titled, yeah that's the top 20 as you can see, in an essay titled Fate, Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of the central thinkers in both liberal religion and social liberalism, addressed social location in the United States in the 1840s like this. He wrote, ask the digger in the ditch to explain Newton's laws. The fine organs of his brain have been pinched by overwork and squalid poverty from father to son for a hundred years. When each comes forth from his mother's womb, the gate of gifts closes behind him. Let him value his hands and feet, he has but one pair. So he has but one future, and that is already predetermined in his lobes and described in his little in in that little fat face, pig-eye, and squat form, uh, all of the privilege and all the legislation of the world cannot meddle or help to make a poet or a prince of him. That's fate, according to Emerson in the U.S. in the 1840s. Now, Emerson is talking about my family here. (laughs) Yes, we were already here in that poverty-ridden south, digging ditches. Right? Digging and delving, as we used to call it. And yes, it's offensive. And yes, Emerson, even though he was a liberal, was a person of his time, a racist, a sexist, and a classist. We can definitely say that Emerson is making the classic capitalist mistake here as well. What you do makes what you're worth in our culture. Right? A classic capitalist mistake. What you do is your worth. Yet Emerson does have a glimmer of thought about fate, as you notice in those words, in how the human hands and brain is affected. He says of the poor, when each comes forth from his mother's womb, the gate of gifts closes behind him. Nature has provided, though culture will clearly do no such thing. Mom took care of you, that's the end. Our culture... No way are we going to help you out, right? And poverty rights on the bodies, Emerson points out. Uh, he has but one future, and that is already predetermined in his lobes, brain. Of course, this is the days of phenolo- uh, phren- phrenology? phrenology, right? Yes, yeah, so. so the baby's brain is already constricted by social class before you're even born. Now... I know that my ditch-digging forebears would have said something along these lines if they had talked to Mr. Emerson. We ain't interested in no egghead Harvard stuff nohow. how <laughs> right. This is the ver- a very human response, isn't it? We don't want what we can't have. We ain't interested in no egghead Harvard thoughts know-how. To me, this is all about opportunity, the chance to be educated if one wishes to be, right, if you want to. My parents didn't have that choice, for example. They were part of this continuum. One change, one transformation that needs to occur in the U.S. today is clearly educational opportunity. It's always been, in our culture, one of the ways out. And that's one of the things that people in our congregation have fought for. We fought for Darwin being taught in public schools back in the 1920s. And indeed, in this state anyway, you can still talk about Darwin in schools. And it's also why we help out in Love Works Academy today. We want people to have the opportunity of education. Emerson was no doubt realistically describing social mobility in the United States in the 1840s, and to a slightly lesser extent in the 1940s. Our job is to change it a lot before the 2040s. That is the why, the heritage of this congregation. Now, one central concept in our society's consideration of fate has been a phrase from the philosopher Heraclitus, who lived in the 400s BCE. Heraclitus is reported to have said, character is fate. The phrase suggests that an individual's character fundamentally shapes their destiny or future, emphasizing the importance of personal virtues and vices in determining how you will live your life. Or, at least that's what we think this old cliché means, but actually it doesn't. Ethos is the Greek word often translated into English as character. But we know the word ethos, don't we? It's actually become an English word. It meant at the time custom or habit. I think it probably means more like zeitgeist that we use nowadays. Anthropos, that's to a human, and daemon, it, it eventually becomes demon, bad spirit, but daemon is a good spirit in, in uh, ancient Greek writing. When we look at the phrase from this angle, habit or zeitgeist is a human's spirit, but maybe Heraclitus is saying something else here. Let's think about it. The English word character derives from the Greek word character, same word right, meaning a stamping or an engraving tool, character, stamping or engraving tool. It's no accident, for example, that Ibrahim Kendi titled one of his books, Stamped from the Beginning, the definitive history of racist ideas in America, stamped or engraved from the beginning. Cultural assumptions concerning fate character are indeed often stamped on our lives from the very beginning. But that's the meaning of character from Greek. After all, English is often uh, using phrases like, oh, that's, that's that person's character traits, right? We, we expect something to be the same about that person. Actors play a character, but most of the time they have a script. They have something they're supposed to say, It is predetermined in the play how they act. Their character traits toward a particular plot meaning. It develops in a particular way. So in fact, the word character comes with a lot of baggage, both positive and negative. Is character predetermined? Or is it developed? Or is it both? Or is it both and? The waters are clearly muddy, yet I contend that it's absolutely imperative that we consider character, if that's what we want to call it. We can also call it self, can't we? I think. It's imperative to view you, for me to consider me able to change ourselves. That's imperative for acting somehow virtuously in the world. I think it's essential. The fact is Heraclitus did not choose to use the metaphor of a stamping tool. He didn't write character, though he could have. All right? So he chose not to. We don't use the word ethos in common English usage, but I think it very often, but I think Zeitgeist probably gets at it. The world spirit, the, idea, the German ideal from, from Hegel, that there is somehow this whole thing uh, of mental... Something floating around in our universe, in our nation that we pick up, in our world that we pick up. Habits, customs, and those kind of things. Now, what's this babel of languages trying to tell us? All of those words have become English words over time, even anthropos in anthropology, right? They've all become English. So, what is, are, are we actually talking about? Do we have free will? Do we have free will within certain specific limits? Is it all an illusion? Again, let's go back to the gods and the way the Greeks thought of them. The Greeks created Tyche when the majority of Greeks thought that they did have free will and that actually chance operated broadly in our world. The Romans created fortuna when the majority of Romans thought that we do not have free will. There is a controlling something out there. On the other hand, the Chinese, for example, thought that we do have free will. We do act within the moment freely. In some human cultures, free will has been the ultimate question of individualism. It was for Emerson. In other cultures, free will is secondary to how well you live into social norms. That's Confucianism. And we can see this ambiguity getting tangled up with things like tarot cards, And it's in astrology as well. Are tarot or astrology cards telling us what will happen for sure or what will might happen if we don't do this other thing over here? There's no clear answer to that in Western culture. The I Ching on the other hand, much like the tarot, says yes, this is about picking the future. It's not about what's going to happen, right? There's a big difference there. In other words, We are going to think in ways that our culture teaches us to think. Yes, we have to, right? And we're going to learn those social norms. Yeah, that's part of it. That's part of the ethos, the zeitgeist. But what if those social norms are wrong or even evil? And I think that's what Heraclitus was thinking about. What if the the zeitgeist has some evil in it? What do you do? And how do we affect personal change, personal transformation? How is that possible given this thing? How do we change and keep changing? How do we get rid of the detritus of social norms out of our own minds so that we can think clearly? I mean, that is what Henry David Thoreau was talking about with that different drummer idea, wasn't it? Don't listen to the zeitgeist. Don't listen to the ethos. Be yourself and transform yourself by so thinking. Emerson put it this way. Every spirit builds itself a house, and beyond its house a world, and beyond its world a heaven. Know then that the world exists for you. Build therefore your own world. Build, therefore, your own world. You can build your own house. Now, some of you literary types probably know that Emerson stole this from, William, from Blake, uh, the British poet, who talked about building your own house as, as a personality, b- building yourself. But for Blake, anyway, it was just like the snail. You have to keep outgrowing your house, and you have to slough it off and, and build a new house uh, r- around you. Right? But for Emerson, anyway, the idea is that you build yourself into a good house and then you can expand that on out into our culture. Each of us is stamped from the beginning. We know that. It's scientifically proven. You can prove it by stats any, any time. We're stamped by our social norms. We're stamped by our social class. We're stamped by all of those social uh, assumptions that we pick up over time, and many Americans believe that these walls are permanent and even just. If you believe in that all-controlling God, things are kind of as they should be. Yet we here believe otherwise. We are countercultural in the true sense of that word. We are against the nonsense that builds up in human cultures over time, against the prejudices and stupidities that come along. weren't any zip codes when I was born, so so I wasn't born into a poor zip code, but uh, it's 62040 nowadays, and it's pretty darn poor. It's a poor industrial suburb of St. Louis on the wrong side of the river, or the Illinois side of the Mississippi. Today, voila! I wonder how I got got that French uh, there on the... (laughs) Am I not French enough for you, machine? Voila! right? I'm on the other side of the Mississippi today, so I must have done something in the last almost going on seven decades. I don't know. Did, did I have it? But, but I'm on the other side of the river anyway, and I owe my ability to do that to our tradition, the tradition of Unitarian Universalist humanism, because it tells me that the purpose of life is to struggle for a shared life in a, stro- in a shared world for everybody. Right. That's always been one of the purposes for me, a shared life and a shared world for all sentient beings. And our tradition tells me that a different world is possible if each of us reaches into our best selves, that changed self, and we fight for the liberation of all. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.